Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. In college, I spent a summer in Europe backpacking and studying. And I didn't plan for this very much at all. But I knew that my journey would begin in London, England. So I booked a lunch with my English literature professor, as one does. (laughs) Uh, After sharing his favorite spots with me, he basically threw up his hands and he quoted the 18th century English wordsmith Samuel Johnson, as, as English professors like to do. And he quoted Samuel Johnson to say this, Sir, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. <laughs> My mind returned to that cafe, to that moment last week when I was studying First and Second Corinthians. The same words from Samuel Johnson could be said of the ancient city of Corinth. When you're tired of Corinth, you're tired of life. Like London, England, ancient Corinth was sprawling. It was bigger than life. It was a destination for many. It's impossible to summarize. And the same can actually be said of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Letters from the Apostle Paul to the, the sort of collection of house churches in this sprawling ancient city of Corinth. In fact, at least one scholar thinks 1st Corinthians is, and I'm quoting, the most difficult of the New Testament letters to summarize. Because, quote, Paul deals in turn with no less than 11 different issues, sometimes in a link similar to his other letters. In other words, if you're tired of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you're tired of life. It's complex, it's endlessly challenging, it's endlessly enriching. These letters are in many ways like a hidden library within the library of Scripture. So I can't adequately summarize the content of 1st and 2nd Corinthians this morning, but I can point you to something that does tie them together. Years ago, I read a book that compiled the posthumous letters of a well-known pastor. And this pastor responded to probably a hundred different topics, a hundred different Issues in his letter writing ministry. But as I was reading this book, I noticed something. I noticed something that tied everything together. He basically had two to three, what I would call kind of biblical bedrocks that he would reference and riff off of in every single letter. I started to actually write down these themes in the back of the cover. I thought to myself, this is interesting. Here's a pastor who didn't need an answer to everything. He basically was like a Swiss Army knife with two blades. (laughs) Or, to change the analogy, 
like the two lenses on my glasses. Everything that he encountered, he saw through these two things. Well, it strikes me that Paul does the same thing in these letters. He has a Swiss army knife with about two blades. And that's it. Or again, two lenses through which he views everything. In fact, the letter of 1 Corinthians, if you have it open with you, you could look. It begins and ends with these two things. What are they? Well, the resurrection of Jesus is how the letter ends. And the crucifixion of Jesus is how the letter begins. And almost everything that Paul encounters, almost everything that Paul does in his ministry in Corinth, he passes through the grid of these two realities. And so can we this morning. But first let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer? And Lord, because you are our Redeemer, we ask that we would see Jesus this morning through your word and be transformed. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Whenever I see red roads lighting up on my GPS, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I just basically hit redirect right away. I've talked about this. I'd rather be moving and like be an hour longer than be sitting still. I will do anything to avoid the messiness of traffic. I will do anything to avoid the messiness of traffic. And I will say this as well. That is just a microcosm of my life. I will do anything to avoid messiness in my life. When things get messy in my life, all I want to do is press redirect. I'm so afraid of messiness, actually, that I will even try to predict messes so as to avoid them. Anybody? Okay, good. I avoid things that do not exist. Okay, that's what I like to do. Now, this is a fear-based way of engaging the world, by the way. And wise observers of the human condition, okay, aka therapists, good therapists, they have a word for this. Fortune telling. Here's one definition that I found. Everyone experiences a bout of fortune telling behavior on occasion. It's easy to jump to a conclusion on a bad day. Because the problem, though, when every scenario has a negative outcome in your head and you haven't taken the time to gather all the facts which can keep you feeling on edge. We all have ways of avoiding messiness in our life, don't we? We all have our own techniques, methods, schemes that we've adopted either willingly or unknowingly. And so we find ways to detour, we find ways to distract, don't we? Fortune telling is just one, something I do. Maybe it's distraction for you. Perhaps it's withdrawal. Uh, Maybe it's throwing yourself into other people's messes so as to avoid your own messes. Uh, Maybe we bury ourselves into things that we're good at keeping tight. Maybe we isolate ourselves. Maybe we master something, a project, a subject, a hobby. Maybe we avoid messiness by clinging to charismatic people, like pastors, podcasters, politicians, people who promise tidiness. 
in the midst of a messy reality that we are facing both inside and outside of ourselves. Maybe it's through accumulating new experiences in our life. We are impulsive or we simply think of the next dish that we're going to eat, the next place that we're going to visit. Or maybe we just break ties with whatever is messy. And so in our story, as we think about it, there is just chapter after chapter after chapter of unfinished business because we are just breaking off what is messy. But here's the thing. All of these things, and I think I could get an amen, none of these things work. We do it all the time. I heard somebody actually compare this idea of trying to sort of avoid messes in our life. I heard somebody compare it to the uh, attempt to keep sand off of a beach towel. <laughs> Who's done that? <laughs> Take a second. You can buy the ultimate sand-free beach blanket. Okay? It looks like a crib. All right? Uh, here's the thing. This ridiculous invention is because life is messy. Beaches are sandy. Life is messy. We need to stop avoiding the mess, and we need to simply enter in. This isn't just a pragmatic problem, by the way. It's a tragedy. Because when you spend life rerouting to avoid messiness, you miss Jesus. Why? Jesus is in the mess. You believe that? Jesus is in the mess. In the Gospels, Jesus is drawn to the mess. He was practically repelled by tidy places and tidy people. And so it makes total sense for me to see an apostle of Jesus, Paul, do the same. Paul does not avoid messiness. He enters into the messiness of Corinth. He enters into the messiness of Paul. In these letters. For all of us to see. Why? Because that is where Jesus is. The church in Corinth was a messy church. With messy people. Led by a messy apostle. But this apostle doesn't reroute. He doesn't see the red line on the GPS map. And say no thank you. (laughs) Go somewhere else. He lovingly enters into the mess. So first of all. Just as a recap of sort of what is swirling around 1st and 2nd Corinthians. First of all, he sends a letter that we don't have. Because things were messy. That's first, we see this in 1st Corinthians 5, 9. About a letter that he sent them previous to 1st Corinthians. And then we know he sends Timothy, one of his colleagues, because things were messy. We see this in chapter 4, verse 17. And then they write Paul, the church writes Paul, because... Things were messy. Chapter 7, verse 1. And then Chloe's house church reaches out to Paul because things were messy. We see this in chapter 1, verse 11 in 1 Corinthians. And then Paul sends 1 Corinthians, the letter that we have in our Bibles, he sends 1 Corinthians to engage no less than 11 different messy things. As we heard. So one scholar, Douglas Moo, he separates these 11 issues into two categories. What we could call internal messes, or inside the house messes, and outside the house messes. And so in terms of the internal messiness, we see things like this. Church leaders 
issues around lawsuits, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, the sending of Stephanus and Apollos. But then we also have external messiness that he has to address. External things like incest and sexual immorality, marriage questions, the unmarried, dining in pagan temples, head coverings, and things surrounding the resurrection. And then Paul makes what we could call a messy visit. He calls it a painful visit. So after he sends his first letter, he visits in what he calls in 2 Corinthians 2.1, a painful visit or a messy visit. And then Paul sends a messy letter by a, his colleague Titus that we don't have. We don't have that one either. And we know this because of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And then Titus returns with messy news, which prompts another letter, and that's 2 Corinthians. All clear? Right? No, it's not. Here's the point. It's messy. It's messy. It's very, very messy. But do you notice Paul does not detour the messiness? He enters in. Why? Because Paul has a savior complex and he needs to be needed? No. No, no. Because Paul's savior is in the mess. Paul's savior, Jesus, is in the mess. And he doesn't want to miss out. This is evident, actually, from the very start. He doesn't say... Guys, how could you be so messy? Clean up your act so that Jesus can enter in. It's not all he says. If you open your Bibles and you take a look, the very first thing he does is he says a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of thanksgiving. These are verses 4 through 9 in 1 Corinthians. He says, I always thank God for you. Number one. And number two, he says... You are in fellowship with God's Son, Jesus. Notice, again, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, clean it up so that Jesus can come in. He says, I thank God for you. You are in fellowship with Jesus. The strongest word for intimacy at his disposal, he says, at the front, I know y'all are messy. Jesus is among you. Jesus is in you. You are in Jesus. Translation, messy Christians. Can I get an amen? Messy Christians are in Christ. And Christ is in messy Christians. The sooner we can settle into this, the better. So Paul is not afraid of messiness. He's not afraid of messy people. He's not afraid of messy people, including himself. He meets Jesus there. And in particular, Paul meets the crucified Jesus in the mess. And he meets the risen Jesus in the mess. I said earlier that Paul has like a two-blade Swiss Army knife, a kind of gospel Swiss Army knife that he carries in his pocket for everything. These are his two blades. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. These are his first importance things. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures so that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Jesus was crucified. Jesus is risen. These are the first importance things in his ministry. These two realities the crucified and risen Jesus is enough for the mess. Dare I say it, Paul wouldn't enter into the messiness if he did not have the risen and crucified Jesus 
and did not know that he was exactly in those spaces. So, two things. Number one, meet the crucified Jesus in the mess. Consider your mess. Consider your messiness. And meet the crucified Jesus there. For Paul, the cross of Jesus is not some important historical event that is now locked in the past or some sort of like satisfying theory of everything that gives us kind of a like a psychological comfort. No, no, no. For Paul, as he says, the cross is power. The power of the cross. Which is why Paul connects the cross to almost every messy issue that he encounters in this church. So the Corinthians, just to take a quick tour, if you have your Bibles, just take a look. The Corinthians were living in a status-hungry culture. And that just kind of carried into church so the people started to brag about which apostle they were baptized by. This was perfectly natural for them. Because that was the culture in which they met Jesus. But Paul sees the cross of Jesus in this messiness. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. The Corinthians were impressive people, like kind of like nationalist musicians, okay? A Corinth was for anybody who wanted to climb in life. And this meant they tended to only value what was impressive and what was upwardly mobile. But Paul sees the cross of Jesus in that messiness. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul even says, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. Two absolute no-nos if you want to make it in life in Corinth. If you want to make it in life in Corinth, if you want to make it in life in Columbus, I'm sorry, Corinth, uh, that was on purpose, then great fear and trembling are things you do not do, correct? You hide that stuff. You hide that stuff. You don't say to your board when you walk in, I am afraid and I am trembling. You don't say even in a church leadership meeting, I'm afraid and I'm trembling. That's what the culture tells you, but Paul's like, no, cross on that. I proclaim the cross on that. And I will know nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on the things that y'all love. Human wisdom. Instead, it will rest on God's power. The Corinthians had a low view of the human body for various reasons, but Paul sees the cross in this messiness. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. Friends, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your spiritual life. No. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. With your bodies. God made our bodies. There's great beauty as image bearers. And yes, as we will see 
Jesus is risen, and therefore our story ends with resurrection. And not metaphorical resurrection, friends, but bodily resurrections. Our bodies matter. But notice that Paul connects the cross in this low view of the body. He says, you were bought at a price with the cross. The Corinthians lived in a sort of caste system of haves and have-nots. And this attitude was carried into their church gatherings. Uh, so the haves ate before the have-nots ate. Uh, but Paul sees the cross in this messiness. The same cross <coughs> saved the haves and the have-nots. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Later in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, And he died for all. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The sins in Corinth um, and in our city create relational estrangement, not just with each other, but with the Lord. But Paul sees the cross in this mess. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, you want to experience reconciliation, not just with others, but with the Lord, your maker, to understand that at the cross, Jesus took on your sin. And we, in a great exchange, receive his righteousness, which means that we have reconciliation. We are reconciled to the Lord. The Corinthians were allergic to weakness, but Paul sees the cross in that mess as well. If I must boast, I will boast on the things that show my weakness. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the cross also shaped how Paul understood his own story. Not just the church that he was pastoring. The reason Paul could see the cross in the messiness of Corinth is because Paul could see the cross of Jesus at work in the messiness that was the Apostle Paul. <laughs> of course. So scholar, scholar Douglas Moody, he summarizes so much of 2 Corinthians as a paradox. Paul liked to express truth through paradox, Moody writes. And he lists six of them. Comfort in affliction. Strength in weakness. Life in the midst of death. Spiritual renewal in physical weakness. Joy in the midst of sorrow. Generosity in the midst of poverty. Friends, the cross is the greatest paradox of all. Victory and losing. <coughs> so if you want to meet Jesus in your life, meet him in your affliction. Meet him in your weakness. In your failures. Meet him in your lowercase d deaths. And even as you grieve your uppercase d deaths. Meet him there as he moves. With you. Meet Jesus in your physical pain. The cross. Meet Jesus in your sorrow. Man, sorrows. Meet Jesus in your lack. He had no Meet him there. Don't avoid the rest of life. Meet him there. Okay? Meet him. That's where he is. That's where he is. Paul also meets the risen Jesus in the mess. 
not just the crucified Jesus. This is the second lens through which he views all of life. His second blade in his Gospels for Simon Knife. This enables him to be present as well in the messiness of life. See, for Paul, the cross and the empty tomb are not just historical events that happened, and now Christians sort of reference that as an important thing in the past. No, no, no. The resurrection of Jesus, according to Paul, it like turned a page. It, like things are different now because of that. Not like kind of different. No, no, like totally different now. There's a popular board game called Pandemic. Who's dared play this post-COVID? Anybody? Okay. Um, you cooperatively seek to prevent a virus from ending the world. Okay, a little close to the bone. Um, so I don't recommend it. I know there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, medical professionals out there. I maybe don't recommend this one uh, for you. However, it is pretty fun. Now, I'm told there is a, a new version. It's a legacy edition. Apparently, each time you play this game, you open a card and the rules change. The game changes. It changes on you. The rules change on you. Everything changes about the game. And you sort of open up envelope after envelope, and you play this thing for about a year with your friends. Sounds fun to me. Uh, here's the thing. That is the resurrection of Jesus, okay? The whole game changed. The whole game changed. Something happened, and now it's different. We're playing with a new rule set. Because Jesus is risen. And so Paul enters the messiness of his life and of others' life because he knows Jesus is alive. Amen? He knows that the Jesus who was crucified is also the Jesus who was risen and is ascended at God's right hand. And who is coming again. And he connects almost every messy issue that he confronts with the reality of resurrection. And he trains them and he trains us to do the same. In other words, what is your messiness? Call it to mind. Call it to heart. I dare you. And then Paul is going to say, Jesus is risen. And so connect that to this. And see what happens. See what happens. Here's just a few examples. They were, the Corinthians were finding safety and status, significance, and their proximity to impressive people. I once spit my gum out in the presence of a musician that I loved at the merch table. I was so excited to be near him that my gun fell on his t-shirt. Josie was there. It was also embarrassing. Were we dating or married? I forget. Dating, yeah. So that's either working my favor or against my favor. I'm not sure. But I found status and significance in proximity to people I thought were impressive. And I still do. I still do. Paul shows them and us the risen Jesus. He says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Okay, so he's basically saying, You are in Christ, Christ is risen, therefore all things are yours. Why are you like really into these piddly human leaders? All things are yours in Christ. Whether Paul or Paulus, he includes himself. Like, why are you into the fact that you were baptized by Paulus? Come on, you are in Christ. All things are yours. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. Stop with the people worship. Stop it. Okay? Jesus is risen. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. You have everything. 
They were suing each other, apparently. Paul shows them the risen Jesus. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And here's his rationale. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Okay, so Paul is basically saying, what's your story? Your story is heading somewhere. Where is it heading? It's heading to resurrection, to new creation, where all things are made new. So why are you fighting each other? Do you realize your future? With the body as well. They were sleeping with whomever they wanted to. Paul shows them the risen Jesus. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And that is the anchor point of his sexual ethic. Resurrection. Bodies matter. Bodies matter. Some are saying Jesus didn't really rise. But Paul shows them what is at stake. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. It's no exaggeration to say that if Jesus isn't really risen, then why why are we even here? It's no exaggeration to say that because the apostle himself. And I think this is actually, if you're here with us this morning and you're wrestling with Christianity, you're wrestling with the claims of, 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 of the Bible, or you're wrestling with what it would look like to be a Christian, um, or if that idea just sends shivers down your spine this morning, I think this is a helpful place to camp out. Just reduce all of the sort of almost like um, distraction and get to the core. Get to the core this morning. Get to this verse and, and, and just say, okay, is Jesus risen or not? If he's not risen, then, then what's... I can I can like save a ton of energy. I can save a ton of emotional energy. I can save a ton of like just uh, just effort, really. If he's not risen, but if he is, risen, oh my gosh! If he is risen, and as one person likes to put it, then we don't get a vote. Do it. He's the Lord. He's the Lord, and that also settles us, doesn't? It? He's either risen or he isn't. And Paul takes us exactly to that point. Why? Because Paul saw everything through the risen. They wrestled not just with the reality of death, but the sting of death. Of course they did. Many of us have as well. Paul shows them the risen Jesus. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the moral with immortality, so he's talking about resurrection bodies, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You know, it's true to say, without resurrection, death wins. And that is a stinging, that is a stinging way to look at it. Paul says, where of death is your sting? And where is your Why? Jesus is alive. Okay? He is alive. The story doesn't end with that. And then something, lastly here, as earthy and as mundane as our work life, and even taking a collection for earthy, mundane needs because of a family, even those things are motivated by the risen Jesus. 
at the end of the most important chapter in the Bible about resurrection, chapter 15, Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then he pivots the very next verse. Now, they didn't have chapter verses or chapter titles in their scriptures, of course. Paul says right next after that, now, about the collection for the Lord's people. So he is sort of like a transcendent sort of truths about resurrection and resurrection body. And then he just goes straight into the mundane. He says, yeah, your work's not in vain. And pass the plate. That's what your days puts it. Pass the plate. Paul's life as an apostle took him to the edge of despair. But it's there that he meets the risen Jesus. He says, indeed, we felt as if we received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but God. God who raises the dead. I know many of you have those portable hammocks that you can take with you wherever you want. Um, for, for these things to work, we need two solid posts, right? Two solid trees with deep roots. And the same is true for our life. Life is messy. But all we need is two anchor points for us to enter into the mess. The cross and the empty tomb. The cross that saved you is the cross that shapes you. And the risen Jesus gives you more than a destination. The risen Jesus gives you a spirit rock orientation for all of life. I know somebody, and I bet you know somebody like this too. If I can't find them in a crowded room, I look to the margins. I look at all the put together groups of people and I know I won't find this person there. But if I look to the margins, I find this person. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus is in the messiness. He hangs out with messy people, which includes all of us. So let's stop avoiding him. Let's stop avoiding him. I like this quote from Mike Yacono. The church is the place where the incompetent, the unfinished, and even the unhealthy are one. And he writes, I believe Jesus agrees. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I mean, what if you this morning accepted Paul's prayer for messy Corinthians as a prayer for you? I thank God for you, says the apostle. I thank God for you. And you are very messy. Why? Because you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. Okay? Do you believe that? Fellowship with Jesus. Jesus in the mess. Fight. Fight. Lord, we... Sometimes look at letters like First and Second Corinthians in your word, and we simply see all the teaching, but we miss the big picture, which is that you are in this church, working, <coughs> encouraging, challenging. You are there. You are exactly there. So, Lord, whatever our messiness is as a church, whatever our messiness is as individuals within this church, would we stop avoiding you and encountering you? Your cross and your empty tomb is enough. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.com.
www.ethanfieldchurch.org.